0: and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam out of all the other true crime podcasts out there. This is Hunting Humans, The McDonald's Massacre. (music) An individual's chances of being killed by a mass murderer are infinitesimally small. But the very fact that mass murders occur rouses in many the dreadful suspicion that life is a crapshoot. Any of us can run fatally afoul of a man who is consumed with rage and compelled to act it out. This was a quote from Laura Foreman's book, Mass Murders, circa 1992. Seventy three years ago, a tragic event marked to many the beginning of a new age the age of mass murder in the United States. The first mass shooting in the United States by a lone gunman, in which 10 or more people were killed, has become known as the Walk of Death. On September 6, 1949, 28-year-old Howard Unruh took a 12-minute walk through his neighborhood in Camden, New Jersey. He shot and killed 13 people and injured three more. Unruh would be found criminally insane and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He would spend the rest of his life in mental hospitals. Seventeen years after the walk of death in Camden, New Jersey, came the Texas Tower shooting, the next deadliest mass shooting in America. For 96 minutes, 25-year-old Charles Whitman sat in the Texas clock tower and fired at everyone below, killing 14 people and further wounding 31. This took place on August 1st, 1966. Whitman would be killed by police. and the following day, a neuropathologist would remove a pecan-sized cancerous tumor found inside Whitman's brain. The Texas Tower sniper reigned as the deadliest lone mass shooter for 18 years, until that fateful day in July of 1984. Criminologists label the people who kill several victims in a single short and bloody episode mass murderers. And, say the experts, these lethal criminals are increasingly common. Mass murder is not strictly a 20th century phenomenon. But theorists believe that a breakdown in social controls during the past three or four decades has undermined the inhibitions that ordinarily keep a person from acting on impulse to kill. Mass murder so grossly violates social and moral norms that it seems those who commit it must be insane. In some cases, this is so. But criminologists consider the majority of mass murderers to be both medically and legally sane. However ugly in their reality, they haven't lost their grip on it. Their behavior cannot be explained away by calling them lunatics. Until they kill, they are far more ordinary than most people may think. That was another quote from the book Mass Murders. James Oliver Huberty was born on October 11, 1942 in Canton, Ohio. At the age of three, he contracted polio and experienced spastic paralysis, according to his father. For some time, he was forced to wear leather and metal braces on his legs. Fellow classmates apparently bullied him relentlessly for his disability. Four years later, his father purchased a 155-acre farm, 20 miles east of town. Earl Huberty worked as a quality inspector for a local plant, but his dream was to be a farmer. His wife had other plans. She refused to live on the farmland and instead left her family to preach Christianity at an Indian reservation. James, his father, and older sister Ruth packed all their belongings and moved to their expansive farm. While James dealt with the loss of his mother, The school children gave him hell, as well. According to his father, kids would grab his cap and throw it out the bus window often. His sole companion was his dog, named Shep. At a young age, he started to develop a strong interest in guns that would eventually turn into obsession. Family members recalled that he would practice incessantly with a target pistol. This fascination with firearms may have come from learning that his great-uncle invented the Lewis machine gun. This weapon was used by the Allies in World War I. The prototype was a family heirloom, and at the age of 16, James removed the mechanism that blocked the machine gun from firing. He loaded it and fired it out his farmhouse window, before placing the block back on and burying the bullets. His grandmother was frightened by the gunfire, leading his father to quote, Give him the Dickens. I had to look up what that phrase meant. Dickens is a substitute for the word devil, and usually, highly religious people who want to refrain from saying the word devil will say Dickens instead. James graduated high school in 1960, placing 51st in a class of just 77. After briefly studying at Malone College, he transferred to the Pittsburgh Institute of Morduary Science in Pennsylvania. His father stated that he made that decision because, quote, made a lot of money, and he wanted to make a lot of money. By early 1965, James was wed to Etna Markland, a woman he'd met at Malone. Reverend David, the pastor that married the couple, had his doubts about their religious union. He stated, quote, By the time he was dating Aetna, he was atheistic and blamed God for taking his mother away from him. He described James Huberty as, quote, halfway intelligent, but when you dealt with him, you always felt a little uneasy about the way he harbored something inside. He was pent up He was a loner and he had kind of an explosive personality. After working at a funeral home for two years, James left to pursue a career in welding. The mortuary director told James that he was in the wrong business, citing his awkwardness in front of grieving families and his hatred of crowds and people in general. In 1969, he was hired at a public utility plant in Canton and began earning twenty-five dollars to $35,000 a year. His reclusiveness didn't go unnoticed by co-workers, and neither did his short fuse and moody behavior. Because of this, he earned a nickname, Puberty instead of Huberty. This nickname enraged James, and probably reminded him of the bullying he endured as a child in school. Coworkers claimed that James was very vocal about his disdain for the government and communism. He often spewed conspiracy theories and warned of a nuclear war with the Soviets. The only friendship Huberty was able to form was with a man who shared a similar passion for guns, James Aslans. For hours, Huberty would gush about various types of weapons and the damage they could inflict on a human body. His favorite were automatic weapons, and he made sure to buy them off any co-workers that may have possessed one. Over time, James started to collect an army of weapons. Aslan's visited his home and recalled, quote, There were guns throughout his house. No matter where he was sitting or standing, he could just reach over and get a gun. The last time James visited his father, he brought his two young daughters. According to neighbors, they would know he had arrived, because he often fired a pistol into the air from his car window. In late 1972, a fire started in the Huberties' home, just after Etna left to pick up James from work. It eventually spread into the basement, where a large quantity of gunpowder was stored. The home exploded and burned to the ground. Leaving nothing but the foundation behind. Huberty's gun collection, along with his great uncle's Lewis machine gun, was destroyed. James's family wasn't safe from his violent temper and outbursts. When he was angry, he would often beat his wife and two daughters. Etna stated, quote, Generally, it was just one hit. However, on one occasion, he struck her with such force it quote, messed up my jaw. Further, he would point guns at Etna and once held a butcher knife to his youngest daughter's throat. Etna had her own irresponsible relationship with guns that's been shown in at least one incident. In September of 1981, she was arrested for pointing a Browning semi-automatic pistol at four women. Etna claimed that their daughters were picking fights, with hers. She pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of disorderly conduct and was fined $200. The pistol was returned within a month. Three years later, James would use that very weapon to carry out the McDonald's massacre. James's friend Aslane eventually cut ties after his behavior became increasingly irresponsible and erratic. Once, James took Aslane's sons shooting out in the country, where he fired a semi automatic Uzi rifle at rocks close by. Aslane was appalled, because the slugs could have easily ricocheted back at them. Aslane stated, quote, It was the little things like that that showed me there was something wrong with him. I made up my mind never to go shooting with him again. James Huberty reportedly liked his dogs more than he liked people. He let them roam the neighborhood, despite the fact that they would scare and bite young children. He threw the German Shepherd's birthday parties and fried their canned dog food. However, these treasured pets weren't safe from James's cruel acts. One day, one of the dogs jumped on a man's car and scratched the paint. The man watched in horror As James dragged the dog back onto his property and shot it in front of neighbors. James then said, There, I took care of it. In another incident, James chased a poodle off his lawn after it defecated in his yard. James nearly shot the dog, but a neighbor managed to convince him not to. James responded to that neighbor with a warning that if he ever stepped on his property again, James would kill him. Over the years, James became increasingly paranoid, hostile, and mentally unwell. He told his wife that God and Jesus Christ were consulting him about the government and President Carter. Additionally, that his dogs were talking to him through their eyes, in ways that only he could understand and that he killed one of his dogs for talking to him. By 1976, Etna began urging her husband to seek mental counseling. He refused, and thought that she was the crazy one. The year after Etna pulled a gun on four women, her daughters got into a fight with two other young girls. When James heard about the incident, he plotted his revenge. 2 weeks later at a neighborhood gathering for kids his daughter stepped up to the girl she had previously fought and punched her square in the eye this move was obviously rehearsed leading the injured girl's father to ask James why he set up the fight James responded quote, "I believe in paying my debts both good and bad" months later James's daughter again attacked the same girl as she walked down the street. Huberty called the police, hoping to get the other girl arrested. Police refused to arrest anyone. Enraged, James called the family's home and stated, One of these days when you least expect it, I'm going to get you alone. In November of 1982, the plant where James worked for 13 years, was shut down, and he, along with many others, were let go. He told a coworker that if he couldn't make a living for his family anymore, he was going to kill himself, and take everyone with him. The following year, he only managed to hold a job for six months, until that plant was closed down as well. It was another shot at his finances and self-esteem. He took every bad thing that happened to him personally and believed that the world was out to get him. On August 17th, 1983, nearly a year before the massacre would take place, James was rear-ended by another vehicle. The accident wasn't terrible, but it led to increasing pain in his neck that he had suffered since childhood. At this point, he had also developed hand trembles confirming that his hopes of continuing in the field of welding were shattered. James lacked steady hands and a place to work since the plants had been closing down. This incident and James's increasing paranoia led him to one day hold a pistol to his head. He did this in front of Etna, who managed to grab his arm, pry his fingers off the gun, and hide it. When she came back, James was on the sofa crying. Within a year, she would regret that decision for the rest of her life. In the fall of 83, the Huberty family moved to Tijuana, Mexico, to take advantage of more affordable living. Within three months, they moved back across the border into San Isidro, California. Neighbors were frightened of James, who on more than one occasion fired weapons off his balcony. In the spring of 84, he jumped at an opportunity that presented itself through an ad in the local newspaper. A federally funded program was offering security guard training, and because of his low income and unemployment, James was eligible to apply. After taking a course for several weeks, the state of California issued him a security guard registration card. This card was valid for two years and he was additionally granted a firearms permit from San Isidro Police, allowing him to carry an exposed pistol on duty. During his first job interview, James made such a bad impression on the owner that they scribbled a four-inch-sized no across his application. James was able to obtain work with another security firm, taking the graveyard shift of 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. Even with the gained confidence through his new job, his mental health continued to deteriorate. James, for unknown reasons, started to believe he was a war criminal. He had never been in any war or served for the military at all. His delusion crossed into reality when he approached a police car one day. He told them he was a wanted war criminal. After checking with Border Patrol and the FBI, they sent him home. Neither had any record of him. Using his knowledge of guns, James started to sketch ideas in a notebook, detailing ways to increase the fire rate of automatic weapons. He sent these sketches to the Pentagon and was furious that he never heard back. That same year, with new money coming in, the Hubertys were able to move once again this time into a two-bedroom apartment on Averill Road. Through their back windows, they could see a McDonald's a block away. In their home, James would continue to verbally and physically abuse his family. Once he became so enraged by a bill from his daughter's dentist, he walked into her bedroom with his Uzi and shouted, Why spend money on the girl's teeth? She'll be dead anyway. This was in reference to the recurring nightmares his daughter was having, where she was stuck inside of a casket. On July 10th, James was fired yet again. His supervisors claimed he was too nervous to be a security guard. James believed that this decision was actually made by the CIA and the Pentagon. Five days later, for the first time, James confided in his wife that he may have mental health issues. Two days later, on the 17th, she found him sitting calmly by the telephone. James had apparently phoned a mental health clinic and was waiting to hear back. However, hours passed and the phone never rang, much to James's disappointment. Unknown to him, the receptionist had actually misheard his name and written Shuberty instead. And because of his calm demeanor, the call would be handled within not just a few hours, but 48 hours. James stormed out of the home and decided to clear his head with a long ride on his motorcycle. While he was out, Etna began calling every health clinic in the Yellow Pages, hoping to land the one he'd contacted. If she found the one he'd reached out to, she was going to tell them her husband was armed and might kill people. When she reached the correct clinic, they told her no one under the name Huberty had made an appointment. This was because they recorded the wrong name. To one of the receptionists, Etna told them about her fears. Their solution to her was advising her to call the police. She did not. When James returned home an hour later, he seemed to be in a much better mood. The family ate pizza together, then went on a bike ride. Later that night, Etna and James watched one of their favorite movies together. To Etna, everything seemed fairly normal. The next morning, July 18th, the Huberties went to court for a minor traffic violation. The judge let them off with a warning. After eating lunch at a McDonald's downtown, the couple went to the San Diego Zoo. As they were walking, James rambled about his government conspiracies and his disappointment in the clinic for failing to get back to him about an appointment. Specifically, he told his wife, well, society had their chance. Over the course of their marriage, Edna told James that she could tell his future through playing cards. James had faith in these readings and would make business deals and other decisions based on her predictions. This is a quote from Mass Murders, in which a neighbor witnessed one of these very readings, long before the family moved to California. Quote, Once a visitor watched Etna make an elaborate show of laying cards out on a table twice, wearing an expression of great alarm. Huberty watched over her shoulder, becoming more anxious by the minute. He asked her several times what she saw. She finally told him he was going to die violently before the age of 43. This prediction would come true. James had either decided in his mind that this would be his fate, or it would be pure coincidence that before the age of 43, he would meet a violent death. After the couple returned from the zoo that evening, Etna made lunch for their daughters. She went upstairs to take a nap. And a short time later, James would walk in, dressed in his favorite camouflage pants. He told her, I want to kiss you goodbye. When she asked if he would be home for dinner, and where he was off to, James responded, No. I'm going to hunt humans. As he walked out of the door, James walked by his 12-year-old daughter. Before exiting, he told her, Goodbye. I won't be back. Apparently, Etna was so used to her husband making these kinds of remarks that she wasn't alarmed. She didn't try to stop him or call police. July 18th, 1984. Minutes before 4 p.m., the 41-year-old drove his black sedan 200 yards to the closest McDonald's. With him were three weapons a 9mm Browning semi automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi, and a 12 gauge pump action shotgun. In a cloth bag were hundreds of rounds of ammunition for each gun. The San Isidro McDonald's massacre would last 77 minutes, one hour, 17 minutes, of one man with three guns spraying down anyone and everyone in sight, taking his time to easily and methodically destroy as many lives as possible, men, women, and children. Roughly 30 to 40 people were inside the restaurant, enjoying what would be, for some, their very last meals. The staff consisted mostly of teens and young adults. The manager, Neva Kane, was just 22 years old. She'd gotten married just a month ago. The gunman parked his car right outside the west entrance and retrieved his weapons and ammo before locking it back. He entered the restaurant with a pistol clipped to his belt, the Uzi strapped to his chest, and a shotgun in hand. He entered the restaurant and immediately pointed it to an employee sweeping up, 16-year-old John Arnold. 20-year-old Flores, an assistant manager, shouted, Hey John, that guy's gonna shoot you. The teen had been so focused on his work, he hadn't noticed. He looked up to find an old, balding stranger, pointing the muzzle of a shotgun at his face. The trigger was pulled. A click. But nothing happened. John walked away thinking it was some kind of sick joke. The man fiddled with his gun before raising it again, towards the air, firing a blast through the ceiling. This sound made it clear to everyone that this was not a joke, and everyone's eyes were on the gunman. Neva Kane got up from a booth and walked towards the counter. Just as she reached it, she turned to look directly at the Uzi, which was pointed at her face. Those present believed that this was an armed robbery that this delusional man just wanted to empty everyone's pockets. That belief immediately dissipated after the first fatal shot, which was directly aimed at Neva's face. Within minutes, she was dead. Once again, the shotgun was pointed at John Arnold, then fired. This time, it went off. It managed to brush his side as he dove under a table for cover. He was still alive. This is when the gunman started to yell his demands, which were different depending on which survivor you asked. All in all, it was along the lines of, get on the ground or I'll kill you. And, I've killed thousands and I'll kill thousands more. Everyone scrambled to the floor, hid under tables, behind anything they could find, while clutching their family and loved ones. The angry man yelled inexplicable obscenities, he called the hostages, who were mostly Mexican, quote, dirty swine, and Vietnam assholes. One survivor would later state, Minutes seemed like hours, and hours like days, and I thought that no one even knew we were there. 31-year-old Aristilce Vargas was among some of the first to be shot. Her two friends managed to survive their wounds. However, she would later die from an injury to the back of the head. She was the only victim who managed to reach a hospital before passing. The first 911 call came to police at 4 p.m., just minutes after the gunfire began. The operator informed police that a little girl had been shot and brought into a post office next door to the McDonald's. Officers responded quickly to the wrong McDonald's. It cost them several minutes of crucial time. When the first gunshot went off, 23-year-old Mariah Rivera was at a table by the back door leading to the outdoor fenced-in playground. Immediately, she ran out the door and scooped up her 4-year-old daughter, who came running towards her as well. She returned to the table where she had left her 1-year-old and cradled both of them in her arms as they hid beneath. Her husband, 25-year-old Victor, was ordering at the counter when the shooting started. After Neva was shot right in front of him, he begged the shooter to stop. This was met with him being shot several times, and him going down with screams of pain. He was told to shut up, before being shot several more times. Victor Rivera suffered a total of 14 gunshot wounds. These wounds were fatal. Mariah had to keep calm as she watched her husband and father of her children die a violent death. The gunman then directed his attention to a huddle of six women and children on the ground. Fifteen-year-old Amelda, who was a part of this group, would survive with a wound to her hand and playing dead for over an hour. Eleven-year-old Aurora would, too, with a wound to her left leg. The Herrera family was returning from a vacation when they decided to stop at this restaurant for a bite to eat. After the first shotgun blast, they separated into two pairs, under two different tables. Blythe and her 11-year-old son, Mateo, under one, Ronald Herrera, and his son's friend Keith under the other. Ron shielded 11-year-old Keith with his body, saving him from a blast of gunfire that could have taken Keith's life. They both survived after being struck, and never lost consciousness. Blythe and Mateo were fatally injured. After all of this was over, Keith crawled over to Mateo and shook his leg, trying to wake him up. He thought his friend had been pretending to sleep, like he had. It wasn't until after he had been treated that Keith would register that his friend was gone. In an interview, Mariah Rivera recalled, There was a time when he told everyone to be quiet, and to quiet the children, because he was getting anxiety and he did not want to kill children. But the children did not stop crying and he started shooting them, going table to table. I prayed to God to protect my children, to save my daughters, or to take me too. My daughters were crying and I kept telling them to go to sleep so they wouldn't feel the pain. I told them that the bullets were just ice, that the ice machine had just burst. I told them, go to sleep, and you won't feel anything, and I started massaging their heads. He came to our table and kicked me, and I had to pretend I was dead. He thought we were dead, because there was a lot of blood around us. A bullet grazed my arm, and my four-year-old daughter was shot in the leg. So God protected us. He wasn't just firing at those inside the restaurant. Unsuspecting victims walked up, having no idea about the carnage playing out inside. Marcela Duarte was one of those people. In her arms, she carried her infant daughter, Carla. This is what she stated in the documentary 77 Minutes about her experience. We got to McDonald's, and he parked by the post office. I grabbed my little girl. We walked a little bit from the car to the McDonald's. That's when I felt the gunshot. It felt like a bomb had hit my face. I felt blood on my face, and I looked down at my daughter, but I never let her go. They kept shooting at us. My husband yelled, Give me the child, and I did. He told me run, but he ran towards the post office. And I ran towards the left. I looked down and I saw a lot of blood on my stomach, leg, and arms. He kept shooting at us, so the whole time I was fleeing, I crouched down. When I reached my husband, he did not have our child anymore. And when I saw that, I fainted. He had already given her to someone, but I did not know to whom. I just fainted. Officer Rosario was the first officer who responded to the 911 call. He was directed to the post office next door about a wounded child. The child, Marcela's four-month-old girl, had already been taken to the hospital by a woman who flagged down another police officer. Marcela, her husband, and her four-month-old baby all survived. Officer Rosario had no clue about the active shooter until he spotted people ducking behind cars in the McDonald's parking lot, with their eyes glued to the building. He and the gunman noticed each other at the same time. The man began firing at Rosario, who took cover behind a truck. At 4.10pm, Officer Rosario informed dispatch about the shooter, whose gunfire could be heard in the background. Rosario was armed but his thirty-eight caliber pistol was no match for the man's long-barrel Uzi. All he could do was take cover and wait for backup and further instructions. A trio of 11-year-olds rolled their bikes into the west side of the parking lot. It was a tradition for the boys to grab ice cream on hot summer afternoons. From across the street, someone yelled something at them. The glass of the restaurant was tinted, and on a sunny day like this, one could hardly see inside. Bullet holes riddled the glass, but none of it had shattered. They paused for a moment and turned, unaware of what the random person had said. In that instant, a wall of bullets mowed them down. They crashed into the sidewalk, tangled in their bikes. Joshua Coleman looked at his friends blood pooling around them as he tried to be as still as possible. His friend, David Flores, was killed instantly. As Joshua played dead and struggled to breathe, his friend, Omar Hernandez, called for his mother. For the next few minutes, he watched on, as Omar convulsed, vomited, and took his last breath. A few weeks ago, Omar and Etna Huberty had coincidentally crossed paths the 11-year-old had showed her how to operate a washing machine at the local laundromat. Directly after David and Omar were killed, an elderly couple walked up to the McDonald's. 69-year-old Ada and 74-year-old Miguel Victoria were the oldest victims of the massacre. They were visiting their daughter-in-law, who had recently become widowed after the tragic loss of their son, who had been decapitated. In a freak accident at an airport. Still, the couple frequently traveled from Tijuana to visit her, their two granddaughters, and help with anything they could need. The couple had stopped at the restaurant to grab some burgers for their other son, who was waiting at home for them to return. Joshua Coleman watched from the ground as the elderly couple walked up to the restaurant doors. Ada was immediately met with the blow of a shotgun, and fell to her husband's feet. Miguel yelled, God damn it, you killed her, before falling over as well and cradling his wife on his knees. The gunman walked closer to the door while cursing back at Miguel, then shot the elderly man from just inches away. He then reloaded his weapon, giving a young man and a woman the opportunity to escape unscathed. They did so successfully. Every time the gunman finished a round, he took his time to calmly reload each weapon. Several people managed to escape during these instances, but many did not. They were either too wounded, too scared, or too far from an exit. An assistant manager and his co-worker had been listening to the radio in a far booth as they worked. Now, they were both injured. Hiding under the booth... As the radio softly continued, the shooter walked over and grabbed it, spraying at bodies randomly as he moved. He carried the radio to the front counter and played with the dial. People thought he was trying to find the news reporting on his massacre. Instead, he stopped on a channel playing music. Some survivors who managed to catch a glimpse recalled him dancing to the music as he continued killing. Within 30 minutes, dozens of people were dead, dying, or seriously injured. 62-year-old Lawrence Versluis, a truck driver on his last day on the job, was deceased. He always took his daily coffee break at McDonald's. Friends and family called him Gus. He was looking forward to a huge retirement party and a trip to Spain with his wife. 46-year-old Hugo Velasquez, an international up-and-coming banker, was also deceased inside the restaurant. Albert Leos, Wendy Flanagan, and several other employees had been hiding in the kitchen since the rampage started. They had managed to stay quiet and not draw his attention for roughly 35 minutes. However, on a hunch, or upon hearing three girls crying, the gunman hopped behind the counter to inspect the kitchen. He was surprised to find them and started shooting at the group right away as they screamed and attempted to run. 22-year-old Paulina Aquino and 19-year-old Elsa Borboa did not survive. Before 18-year-old Margarita Maggie Padilla was killed, she told her coworker Wendy to run for the rear exit. Wendy survived and recalled that terrifying moment in an interview years later. I remember Maggie pushing me, telling me, run, run. She grabbed my arm. I never looked at her. I just shook my arm down and kept running. And I got out of the way of the bullets. And... she didn't. She stayed there. I ran to go out the emergency exit, but that was locked. Wendy had to run down a flight of stairs to hide in a closet instead with five other co-workers that had survived the emergency exit had been locked because someone in charge of the establishment was worried about employees stealing food. Albert and Wendy only managed to make it to the closet because the gunmen had run out of ammunition while killing their coworkers when first responders pulled up to the scene the gunmen would go back and forth between firing at their vehicles and the wounded, still-groaning victims on the bloody floor. If anyone made a sudden move or sound, they would immediately be shot. Nineteen-year-old Jose Perez was lying in a booth, bleeding and moaning in pain, but still alive. Unfortunately, this caught the gunman's attention, leading Jose Perez to be fatally shot in the head. He died on the restaurant floor alongside his neighbor, 22-year-old Gloria Gonzalez, and another teen, 18-year-old Michelle Concross. At 4.40 p.m., SWAT team sniper Chuck Foster arrived to the shopping center adjacent to the McDonald's, over 40 minutes into the massacre. At 5.02 p.m., he and another officer were positioned on the roof of the post office. 110 feet away. He only managed to see the gunman because the double doors of one entrance had been completely shattered. Chuck watched as the man's feet dangled off the front counter as he reloaded once again. He then hopped off the counter and entered Chuck's view from the chest down. The sniper took his chance and fired straight into the gunman's heart. At 5.20 p.m., it was confirmed over the radio that the shooter was down. When the news broke that it took police 77 minutes to down the gunmen, the community was outraged. Authorities tried to soften the blow by stating that most of the killing took place within the first 10 minutes. The commander of police, Larry Gore, made this claim. However, witnesses and survivors had a different story. When Albert got shot he was hiding and it got discovered and that wasn't until well into halfway into it and he was with three or four other people and they all ran and a couple of them died and the other ones got shot so that wasn't the first 10 minutes. Commander Larry Gore said most if not all of the victims were shot in the first 10 minutes. Do you agree with that? No, that never happened. Why would they make such an irresponsible statement like that? Um, I can't speak for them. Okay. That voice you just heard was John Arnold, decades later in an interview. He was the employee that was almost shot first while sweeping, but is still alive today only because the gun jammed. He and Wendy Flanagan watched as three of their co-workers were killed, right beside them. That was 35 to 40 minutes into the massacre. Ronald Herrera, who lost his wife and son in the rampage, was shot 45 minutes apart. The police response was heavily criticized, similarly to the recent mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The difference in these shootings, when we look at police response, and the number of victims are minimal. The San Isidro McDonald's massacre took place over a span of 77 minutes, and 21 innocent people were killed. The Uvalde shooting at Robb Elementary School took place for 78 minutes, and 22 innocent people were killed. I don't really know what to make from this similarity, but I just wanted to point it out, because these events happened 38 years apart. On July 19th, 1984, the day after the shooting, Etna Huberty contacted the media to share her side of the story. She told the journalists her husband loved to shoot weapons in their basement and suffered mental health issues, that he wasn't in his right mind. She also stated that he was very anti-immigrant, hated them, especially Mexican immigrants, which made up the majority of his victims. However, in a press conference on August 2nd, the San Diego police chief would refute these claims. When asked about a potential motive. He denied that it was racially motivated, stating he didn't like anybody. The National Institute of Health sought to explain the motive of Huberty's actions by examining his brain. The coroner found no abnormalities, no tumors or scars. The cause of this could only be pieced together through people who knew and encountered him. In a letter to a local TV station, this is what Etna wrote, shortly after the shooting, in part. I am truly sorry for the problems my husband caused. I don't believe that he came to this community with that type of intention. Everyone is wondering why he would do such a thing. He has always been a nervous person who could not take much pressure. He had a very unhappy childhood. He came from a broken home. He was always very sad and lonely. His only close friend was his dog, Shep. Two years later, Etna would file a civil lawsuit against McDonald's, and her husband's former employer, seeking five million dollars in damages. She claimed that the additives in the restaurant's fast food, in part, caused the rampage. Further. She asserted that the chemicals Huberty was exposed to while working as a welder for over a decade played a role as well. The combination of these chemicals over time caused, quote, the violent outburst which resulted in Huberty's death. This case was a wrongful death suit, so Etna was claiming that her husband's death was caused by McDonald's food and metal fumes not by his own actions, that resulted in one of the worst mass shootings, and the worst mass shooting at the time. It would be dismissed just a year later, in 1987. The location of the shooting was initially going to be reopened after renovation, but after backlash from the community, the McDonald's was demolished on September 26th. This land was eventually sold for a new college four years later, with an exception that 300 square feet would be saved for a permanent memorial. A student from this college designed the memorial, unveiling it in 1990. He stated, "...the 21 hexagons represent each person that died, and they are different heights, representing the variety of ages and races." Of the people involved in the massacre. They are bonded together in the hopes that the community in a tragedy like this will stick together like they did. The San Isidro Relief Fund exceeded a total of 1.4 million dollars in donations for victims' families and survivors. If you truly want to know the impact this tragedy had on survivors and family members of victims, I highly suggest you watch the documentary 77 Minutes, circa 2016. I believe there's two different documentaries about this massacre, but I have only seen the one released in 2016. And before you watch, just know that they show graphic crime scene footage from the incident, and they don't give a warning. At least, I don't remember seeing one, so this is your warning for that. It is incredibly disturbing and upsetting, but if you feel like you can handle that, it's definitely worth watching for the interviews of people that were actually there and experienced the tragedy. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, and I'm sorry it was late. I was working on a YouTube video for a while, which has been uploaded to my channel, True Crime Cam, so that made me get a late start on this episode, and it ended up being a lot longer than I anticipated, but thank you so much for listening, and. Don't forget to tune in next week for another episode. I hope you have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.